0: Let's give our attention now to the reading of God's holy, inspired, and inerrant word, beginning in Exodus chapter 14, verse 19. Then the angel of God who was going before the host of Israel moved and went behind them, and the pillar of cloud moved from before them and stood behind them, coming between the host of Egypt and the host of Israel. and the flower fades, but the word of our God remains forever. Let's pray. God, thank you for your word. Thank you for giving it to us this morning. We ask that you would give us help by your spirit, that you would give us understanding, Lord, that we might be able to grow in the grace and knowledge of Jesus Christ, that we might be able to endure in this land, in this world, in this life, that we might have our hearts tuned to you, And Lord, that you, through all things, would be magnified and glorified. Would you help me, O God, your servant, protect me from error. And may the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be pleasing and acceptable unto you, O God. You are our rock and our redeemer. And we ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Ian and Larissa Murphy's love story began in much the same way that All other love stories begin. They met. That helps, right? They met. They met in college. The year was 2005. And they quickly fell head over heels in love. Their story, though, became unlike most others just 10 months later. 10 months later, while on his way to work, to work an extra job, because he had a secret, he was saving up some money to buy an engagement ring. Ian was in a devastating car accident. Though the surgeons were able to save his life, he was left with a traumatic brain injury that affected both his ability to walk and his ability to speak. Shortly after the accident, Larissa moved in with Ian's family and she began helping them with this therapy. She knew that Ian loved her. She found out that he loved her so much he was considering asking her to marry him. So she chose at that moment to commit to him right then. And so she served him in the family and she began praying that God would allow them to one day get married. And that day finally came five years later in 2010 when they were wed in a wonderful outdoor ceremony. You see them up front, Larissa, is not standing with her groom. She's seated next to him in his wheelchair. And they vowed to love one another all the days of their life. And though it wasn't the road that they would have chosen to take, it still led them to the place where they both hoped to go, to marriage. Committed to one another in marriage. Just didn't happen the way they thought. It might happen. At their ceremony, the pastor who was doing the wedding read these words written by John Piper. Now I'll quote, Dr. Piper says, if we set our face to make of marriage mainly what God designed it to be, no sorrows and no calamities can stand in our way. Every one of them will be not an obstacle to success, but a way to succeed. And then he closes with this, which is applicable to all. The beauty of the covenant-keeping love between Christ and his church shines brightest when nothing but Christ can sustain it. The covenant-keeping love between Christ and his church shines brightest when nothing but Christ can sustain it though maybe not to the degree that Ian and Larissa experienced, many of our own stories contain similar unexpected and perhaps even unwelcome detours and hard roads. Perhaps it's a result of the comfortable, relatively flourishing first world Western culture that we live in. Or perhaps it's the byproduct of a a generally take rather than give Christian subculture we feel entitled to participate in. Or perhaps it may even be the persistent self-centered sinfulness that is yet to be completely rooted out of us on this side of glory or probably a combination of all those and other things. Whatever it is, I think we can all agree that generally we're not very good at taking such detours And hard roads. When we're at point A, trying to get to point B, even the most adventurous among us, no one really ever looks at a map and says, I think I will take the hardest route possible. I want the possible that's I want the route that's gonna give me the most possibility of hardship. No one does that. God, on the other hand, is not us. God often chooses the hard road for us. The question then becomes not, how in the world am I ever gonna make it to my destination? How in the world will I ever make it from point A to point B? The question changes and it becomes, will he be enough to sustain us as we make the journey there? Will Christ be enough On the way. This morning, we come to the all too familiar yet never gets old story of Israel's exit out of Egypt. An exit that can surely be said to be a journey that takes the hard road. Though chapters 13 and 14 are just the first leg of an even harder journey that lies ahead, we can still come to these two chapters with fresh eyes. We can come and see very clearly how God's choice for Israel is not only for their good, but it's for his glory, it's for his glory. So to start this morning, to see how God is at work for both Israel's good and for his glory, I want us to look at how the Exodus is rooted in God's promises. If you're taking notes, that's our first point this morning. The Exodus is rooted in God's promises. So we we very well actually could say that the exodus from Egypt is rooted in eternity. It's rooted in eternity, being the earthly manifestation of God's eternal decree, right? So before the foundations of the world, God had chosen this people to be his people. And even then he had foreordained all that would ever come to pass. So in that sense, the exodus is rooted in God's, eternal decree. But we could also say that the exodus from Egypt is rooted in the curse that God spoke to Satan in Genesis chapter 3. Remember where he had told, he had promised Satan that the seed of the woman would crush his head. Though the exodus is not the ultimate fulfillment of that promise, it does stand as a type It's a shadow, right? It's a type of the exodus from sin that Jesus would accomplish when he crushed the head of the serpent, when he crushed Satan's head through his death and resurrection. So God's eternal decree and God's first promise of deliverance is most certainly then the very tip of the roots of God's promise. To use military language, they are the tip of the spear, But God has been even more specific with his people. You may remember back in Genesis chapter 15, verses 12 through 16. You can turn there, we're gonna look at that. Genesis chapter 15, verses 12 through 16. God told Abraham of this coming Exodus, many, many years before, Genesis chapter 15. Verses 12 through 16, as the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell on Abram and behold, dreadful and great darkness fell upon him. Then the Lord said to Abram, know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs and will be servants there and they will be afflicted for 400 years. But I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve and afterward they shall come out with great possessions. As for you, you shall go to your fathers in peace. You shall be buried in a good old age and they shall come back here in the fourth generation for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete i mean even verse 14 i mean we have the 400 years here right it's 400 years right but also in verse 14 it comes to fruition in the exodus event if you just look back to Exodus chapter 12, verse 36. We read that the Egyptians gave the Israelites everything that they asked for. They're so desperate to get them out. The Israelites say, give us your gold and your silver jewelry and give us your clothes, and they give it to them. And so Israel plundered them, Twelve thirty-six says. They came out of Egypt with great possessions. God had even, by the way, reiterated this promise to Moses back in Exodus three, when he met him at the burning bush. I'll bring you back, I'll bring you back to this mountain. In Genesis 46, the specific promise of deliverance is reiterated again, but this time to Abraham's grandson, Jacob, who was about to take his entire family down to Egypt. You know the story? If you go to chapter 46, beginning in verse one, So Israel took his journey with all that he had and came to Beersheba and offered sacrifices to the God of his father Isaac. And God spoke to Israel in visions of the night and said, Jacob, Jacob. And he said, here I am. Then he said, I am God, the God of your father. Do not be afraid to go down to Egypt for there I will make you into a great nation. I myself will go down with you to Egypt and I will also bring you up again. And Joseph's hand shall close your eyes. Now this these words are fulfilled in part, of course, when Joseph literally brings Jacob's body back to Canaan after he dies. But that, in and of itself, is also a type, it's a picture of what will come. Jacob, whose name was changed to Israel, represents as the federal head there of his family. His family will also come up out of Egypt one day. In the same type of Exodus, they will come up on on horses and be led away, right? And all this glory, they're gonna come out. And so they come out. Israel is to come out just as God had promised. There are other promises at play here too. For example, In Genesis 12, two and three, God had promised Abraham that he would make of him a great nation and that in him all the nations would be blessed. Remember, how did they go down to Egypt? How did Israel go down to Egypt? How many? 70? They went down to 70 and they're leaving how? Look at 1237. It says 600,000 men. 600,000 men, that's not counting the women and children. 600,000 men, it's a huge a huge people. Exodus twelve thirty eight also mentions, and this is key, they're leaving as a mixed multitude. This is important, this, these are important words. Because literally this means that they're leaving as an ethnically diverse group. It's not just Israelites who are leaving by birth. Others are coming with them. People that are not part of the ancestral family of Israel leave with them. The nations are being blessed. The Exodus from Egypt is rooted in promises such as these. And God wants his people to know these promises. God wants his people to remember these promises. So at the beginning of chapter 13, we see God instructing Israel on matters related to remembering. In verses one and two, and again, in verses 11 through 16, we find regulations regarding the consecration of the firstborn. We'll get to those later in the law section. But God is telling them, I want you to set aside the firstborn. Set them aside, not sacrifice them, not like the heathens do, no, to set them aside, consecrate them unto God. Then in verses three through 10, we find instructions again about the feast of unleavened bread, which by the way, comes at the heels, right? Of instructions back in chapter 12, again on the Passover, which we looked at last week. Remembrance, these things set aside. God wants his people to remember his promises and his fulfillment of those promises. God wants Israel's heart and Israel's mind focused on all that the Lord has done to keep his word. Look at chapter 13, verse 9. And it shall be to you as a sign on your hand and as a memorial between your eyes, that the law of the Lord may be in your mouth. For with a strong hand the Lord has brought you out of Egypt And then look at verse 16. It shall be as a mark on your hand or frontlets between your eyes. For by a strong hand, the Lord brought us out of Egypt. The message is clear, right? The Lord has brought Israel out of Egypt with his strong hand, just as he had promised. He wants them to remember that. So we see then that the Exodus is rooted in God's promises. Now, I want us to see that the Exodus follows the hard road. That's our second point this morning. The Exodus follows the hard road. Staying in chapter 13, let's look at verses 17 through 22. When Pharaoh let the people go, God did not lead them by way of the land of the Philistines, although that was easy or near. For God said, lest the people change their minds when they see war and return to Egypt. But God led the people around by the way of the wilderness toward the Red Sea. And the people of Israel went up out of the land of Egypt equipped for battle. Moses took the bones of Joseph with him, for Joseph had made the sons of Israel solemnly swear, saying, God will surely visit you and you shall carry up my bones with you from here. And they moved on from Succoth and encamped at Etham on the edge of the wilderness and the Lord went before them by day in a pillar of cloud to lead them along the way and by night in a pillar of fire to give them light that they might travel by day and by night the pillar of cloud by day and the pillar of fire by night did not depart from before them So it's clear here that God himself is leading his people It's a theophany, right, an appearing of the divine here. God is leading them as a pillar of cloud by day and as a pillar of fire by night. Imagine what an amazing sight that must have been, right? Like how many times you're like, I don't know where to go. I don't know where God is leading me. They didn't have to say that, right? Follow the cloud, follow that, and you'll be be all right. Follow. It's gracious of God to do this, very gracious but I also say it's necessary because look how Moses noted it as he's writing this later. God does not lead them by the shortest route or the most logical route or the route they may have chosen. Dr. John Currid in his commentary on Exodus, he notes that the most direct route would have been a well-traveled road called the, the Via Maris. It's the way of the sea is what that means. Uh, It's the most commonly used route from Egypt to Asia in that day. The route that extends from the Nile River across the northern Sinai all the way into the coastal plain of Palestine. But going that way would have caused the Israelites to encounter Egyptian forces. Because along the way, there were forts. And stationed at those forts were Egyptian forces. Dr. Currit aptly concludes, and it's taking from what the text says here, God was well aware of the character of the Israelites that they would likely flee at the first sign of danger. So God leads Israel out of Egypt on the long and hard road, the road that leads them right into the wilderness. Then 14, 1 through 4 happens. Let's look at that together. Chapter 14 of Exodus, beginning in verse one. Then the Lord said to Moses, tell the people of Israel to turn around, to turn back and encamp in front of Pi-Hahoroth between Migdol and the sea, in front of Baal-Zephon, you shall encamp facing it by the sea. For Pharaoh will say of the people of Israel, they are wandering in the land. The wilderness has shut them in and I will harden Pharaoh's heart. And he will pursue them, and I will get glory over Pharaoh and all his hosts, and the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord. Probably the most telling words happen here at the end of verse 4 and they did so. They turned around and headed back. I mean, think about that. It's hundreds of years 430. They're free. They're free. They've been let go. They're on their way away from Egypt. Then God says, turn back, turn around. Make it look like you're confused, that you don't know where you're going. Why? Well, it tells us. It's revealed even more in verses five through nine that Pharaoh, whose heart is hardened by God, can amass the most terrifying military force of that day, his legion of chariots. Okay, this isn't just some militia on the side, right? This is the best of the best of Egypt. Pharaoh will amass these chariots and they're gonna pursue, go right at them, their own tip of the spear, right back, pursue the people of Israel. God wants Israel to turn back toward Egypt and get a glimpse of the doom as it heads their way. Now, you know the rest of the story. I say this a lot, right? Stop that. Get that out of your head for a moment. Put yourself in their sandals. What are you thinking? Are you thinking, and they did so? You're probably thinking, nope. As I say to my kids, nope to the nope. No. I mean, the people take this very well, don't they? I mean, they take it very well. They did it. They're following Moses. They did it. But look at verses 10 through 12. I think they take it probably just the way that most of us would. Look at verses 10 through 12. When Pharaoh drew near, the people of Israel lifted up their eyes and behold, the Egyptians were marching after them. I think this is understated. And they feared greatly. And the people of Israel cried out to the Lord, They said to Moses, is it because there are no graves in Egypt that you have taken us away to die in the wilderness? What have you done to us in bringing us out of Egypt? Oh, man. Is not this what we said to you in Egypt? Leave us alone that we may serve the Egyptians. For it would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the wilderness. Welcome to the well-worn and mostly underappreciated hard road. Our road might have different scenery and may have different ferocious pursuers, but our feet know this hard road, don't they? Our hearts surely know this hard road, don't they? How many times have you sounded just like the people of Israel? Really, God? Are you sure? Really? Did you lead me in your great promises here? Did you really lead me into the wilderness? Did you lead me here just so I could be miserable and die? Couldn't you have just had me suffer and die where I was before? I mean, it wasn't great, but I think I'd probably be happier there. God, is this really your plan? you want things to be hard? Does that sound familiar? It sure does. If it doesn't, you probably haven't been listening to yourself all that well, because it's very familiar. But the exodus from Israel, being rooted in the promises of God, and now following the hard road, is serving a greater purpose than just the comfort and misdirected expectations of the people. Doesn't it just break your heart to hear them say that? Wouldn't it have been better for us to stay there? There's a greater purpose at work. And it's the third thing I want you to see this morning. The Exodus serves to glorify God. The Exodus serves to glorify God. Look how Moses responds to the desperate people in verses 13 and 14. And Moses said to the people, fear not, stand firm and see the salvation of the Lord, which he will work for you today. For the Egyptians whom you see today, you shall never see again. The Lord will fight for you and you have only to be silent. Don't be afraid. Stand your ground. Work the problem, right? Stand your ground. See the Lord's salvation, which he will work for you. Actually, don't work the problem, right? That's what we tend to think, right? I'm going to stay in my ground, but I'm still going to do something here to figure it out. No, he goes further. Shut up and watch. I mean, that's what it says in our vernacular, maybe. Close it. Watch. Look. See quiet and what do they see we read the account already i'm not going to read it again the lord the angel of the lord theophany of the the pillar notice it moves behind the people oh how gracious right moves behind them it's amazing what happens moses stretches out his staff i mean you all have heard this since you were kids Don't don't lose the glory of what's happening here. Moses stretches out his staff over this gigantic red sea before him. The Lord drives back the sea with an east wind, so much so that the waters are divided. The people of Israel then, 600,000 men, plus all the women and children and all the stuff, cross over on dry land. It's not even muddy, right? Like it's been dried up. They walk over on dry land. The entire multitude makes it across with a wall of water on this side and that side. Listen, y'all, I don't like water very much. Some of you men may have had to drag me through there, right? But wow, wow. Think about that for a moment. They make it through. And then the Lord causes the chariots to pursue them. And then he confuses Their wheels are, as the text says in the ESV, their wheels are stuck. They stop working. And then they start talking about fleeing, right? Uh Uh-oh, God's fighting for them. (laughs) And then what happens? They're swallowed up into the sea. Thrown out onto the shore. The Lord saved Israel that day by his mighty hand. The people watched and God did exactly as he promised to do. But why do it that way is the question we're focusing on this morning. Why do it that way? Well, God had made it clear all along. It's summed up in 14.2 when he says, I will get glory. I will get glory over Pharaoh and all his host and the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord. Remember at the very first encounter Moses and Aaron go into Pharaoh and say, the Lord's commands, and like Pharaoh's like, who's the Lord? Now they know. If they didn't know already, they know. They know. This has been repeated throughout the book of Exodus. Pharaoh and Egypt will know. God will be glorified. His glory he will give to no other. He is God and God alone this might very well be one of the hardest things for us to grasp. We are so conditioned to think that the world revolves around us. We're so conditioned to think that everything must happen according to our hopes and our dreams so that we can get what's best for us, what we think is best for us, while claiming all the honor and glory for ourselves. But scripture reorients that for us. It turns that around in a completely different direction from inward to outward, or we might say upward, to God's glory and his glory alone, not ours. Yes, the Exodus was good for God's people, but only because it was God's best for his people. And God's best was fulfilling his promises to them by leading them on the way he wanted them to take, to take the hard road. He called them on that road. That's where he wants them to go. And he's not done with them yet either, is he? And in the end, guess what? God gets all the glory because he is God. But don't miss this. His people get all the good. They've been delivered. They've been set free. They've been able to behold the wondrous works of God. Oh, he does great things. It's the same way, much the same for you and me just as it was for Ian and Larissa Murphy, who I mentioned in the beginning. They had a destination in mind. It was For them, it was marriage, but the hard road that led them there wasn't in vain. If you read about their story, which you can online and see it, see the video from their wedding, you'll find out that the hard road has brought them not only closer to one another, but it's brought them closer to the God who chose that path for them they've exploded in their growth and in their faith though they would have never chosen that road themselves today you can hear him say that was the best road to take why they'll tell you because god gets the glory and we get his good his best so all of us are led by God down difficult roads. In fact, I know that many of you here this morning are on that kind of road already. So here's the question that I wanna frame our conclusion with. Is God enough to sustain you on that journey? On the hard road, is God truly enough? Think about it, you have his promises. He said he'll never leave you nor forsake you. He's actually given you his Holy Spirit. He doesn't lead you by a pillar of cloud or a pillar of fire from outside of you, but rather from within you. The third person of the Trinity, the Holy Spirit of God dwells inside of you. God has delivered you from the power of sin and he sets you free as his son or as his daughter through the blood of his son, Jesus Christ. And Jesus has promised you that he will certainly persevere you to the end to raise you up on the last day. You're safe and secure in his hand. He actually takes it one notch further and says you're safe and secure in the Father's hand because I and the Father are one. Even more, you just let your mind wander through the many, many, many promises of the Bible. You've been promised strength in your weakness. You've been promised grace in your trials. You've been promised provisions in your time of need. And so much more. Is that enough? Will that be enough? As you make your journey through this barren land, as you travel on all kinds of roads, and yes, some are harder than others, as you are on that journey, will God and his promises be enough for you? Can you be satisfied with all that God is for you in Christ Jesus? Is that enough to sustain you on your journey? Can you... Reorient your heart, your mind, your feelings to God? Can you rest in the truth that God is leading you through? What He's leading you through is truly His good plan and purpose for you. It's His best for you, for it is not only for your good, but for His glory as well. Can you? I'm not talking about the consequences from your sin. If that might be the road you're on, I'm talking about God's leading in your circumstances through your life. Can you trust God? Do you trust God as he's leading you? I pray that you can. I pray for myself that I can. If you're like me, I sound a little bit more like Israel some days than I'd like to admit. But I pray as well that the words Moses spoke to the people will bring peace and comfort and joy to you even now. Fear not, stand firm, shut up and watch. See the salvation of the Lord, which he is working for you. The Lord is fighting for you. Amen and amen. Would you turn in your bulletins?